I don't know who it is, but somebody sitting here this morning, in the last week, you have wondered about your salvation. And that would torment me uh, if that were me. Uh, I kind of lived with that sporadically, periodically, from age 9 to age 12. But the Lord settled that when I was 12 years old. And that, I'm telling you, for, th for three seconds, that has not been an issue since I was 12 years old. On that, that day, that night, the Lord dealt with me out of Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, but we're in Matthew 5 today. Uh, if this is not per se an evangelistic salvation oriented though the gospel is in this message and we want the gospel to always be in the messages but if you're here and you're like I'm that person I am struggling if I can help you talk to me after the service uh, don't leave today struggling you can know uh, that you have eternal life uh, and again I, what, what price tag can you put on assurance the only thing better than that is having eternal life Second to that is having eternal life and knowing that you have eternal life. And I have both of those by God's grace. Matthew 5, it occurred to me this week, this is the 18th message we've had out of Matthew 5. I, I don't, so I'm, I'm running, I was thinking a while ago, wow, went 18, I was gone two Sundays. That probably takes us back to the month of May. And I don't mention that as if I'm some great expositor. I mention that because when we launched into chapter 5 back in May or late April, I had no clue it would be 18 uh, messages. Today we finish, Lord willing. But I don't have any regrets, I'm telling you. I look back and I'm like, what would you have cut out that wasn't the plan to do 18? I honestly don't think we'll have another chapter anywhere close to 18 uh, messages. Uh, but we ended up doing all of the Beatitudes one at a time. We talked about salt and light, and we talked about how the Lord Jesus fulfills the law, and he doesn't abolish the law. And then we had these six areas, the last one today that we'll look at here in chapter 5. One of those in itself required three weeks all on its own, and so here we are uh, finishing. But as I said a couple of weeks ago, well, I hope no one thinks we're just dying out already in Matthew. We're going all over the Bible as we're doing this. This is taking us so many places. I have found it, it, it's not old. It is always fresh. It's different each week, though our intro tends to be the same. Look with me if you would. Today we want to try to, try to teach and preach on six verses. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48, finishing the chapter. The words of Christ in verse 43. To his audience on the side of a mountain in Galilee, you have heard that it was said, Here's what you've heard. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard, you've heard, here's the word on the street, here's the impression you've been given. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, and I always kind of make this little motion when Christ, but I say, and what, what is that? That's him coming over the top. He's not undoing the law. He's not abolishing the law. He's not diminishing the law. He is definitely not diminishing the law. Not one time. In fact, if you've been with us, you say, oh, no, he doesn't diminish the law. He doesn't relax the law. And neither does he this time. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. What? But they're persecuting me. That draws us in automatically thinking this is a religious connotation a religious overtone and that's what was happening in Matthew's day the church that of his day that he would have been writing to would have known about persecution exclusions imprisonments beatings deaths it's coming and so verse 44 again I say to you love your enemies pray for those who persecute you why so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil. It's his son. He makes the son, his son, rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just. It's a good thing. And on the unjust. That's how God is. More reasons to love our enemy. Verse 46 now, Grace, if you really listen here, tune in. How would you explain this if you were reading verse 46, 47? For if you love those who love you. Yeah, that's my crowd. I love, people love me, I love them back. If you love those who love you, 
what reward do you have? Oh, I love my people. Okay, great. What, re what reward do you have for that? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. The man who's writing this book, remembering the words of his Lord, is a, was a tax collector. He knows Christ is not bragging on the tax collectors collectors he's saying even the low down in cahoots with the Roman Empire robbing their own people tax collectors do that that's nothing special verse 47 continues hear this grace view and if you greet only your brothers but we greet our brothers if you greet only your brothers what more are you doing than others do not even the Gentiles do the same Again, a little bit of a slam, but what he's saying to them, even the pagan, unsaved Gentiles do the same thing. They greet their close friends and family and brothers. You're not doing anything unusual, but we, we're friendly to our brothers. In verse 48, what a way to finish chapter 5. And these six areas, Christ says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect we want to make sure we water that down today as we teach that I'm sure right what yeah I know I kind of panic when I read that too I'll tell you already I don't even have the handle on verse 48 we'll, we'll dance around it and not really be able to explain it we'll just let the Lord work on us with that uh, Christ continues to look at six areas what he's done is he said, I want you to, now here's his following. I don't know how many were there, but he says, here's what you need to know. I've not come to abolish the law. I fulfill the law. It's about me. I complete it. I fulfill it. And he says, it's going to happen. Every little part of the law will be accomplished before heaven and earth pass away. So don't relax it. Don't relax it in how you teach it. Don't relax it in how you live it. You're going to have to be far more righteous. Your righteousness better exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Not by a little bit, but by a lot. Like not even close. Their righteousness and they're hearing this thinking, what? And then he goes into these six areas. Number one this morning. This first point literally could have been the first point of all six areas that Christ has touched on. And it's verse 43 is a wrong impression. Once again, we're looking at what Christ is telling them, a wrong impression. Six times now, after Christ is saying, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, six times he's showing them areas of the law that they had relaxed. Don't relax the law. Your teachers have been relaxing the law. I don't. I don't abolish it. I uphold it. I fulfill it. And then Christ clarifies it as the one who uniquely fulfills the law and the one most qualified to bring clarification to the law once again here he comes so six times if you've been with us Christ says you've heard that it has been said and every time he does that what follows is a wrong impression that you guys have had about the law watch sometimes it's the law says this and you miss the real meaning you miss what was implied and so he has to clarify today the wrong impression is the law says this and you add to what's not in there I made a statement or a question the other day. Have you ever caught yourself hearing what wasn't said? I have. We do this all the time. God's word says something and we assume that it says something else. Can't go into it, but we take this sovereignty of God over salvation, but then we couple that with the fact that God is sovereign in all things creation. Nothing caught him off guard. Well, then he must be the author and originator of sin, and so thus he is a sinner. Don't you go filling gaps that the Bible doesn't do. Well, what's the answer to that? I don't know the answer to that dilemma. It's over our head. It is not, it's just not in our ability to comprehend that. Don't let logic just fill in blanks that God's Word does not put in there for us. And so where do they get these ideas? Look on the screen. Leviticus chapter 19. Look at verse number 18. So we're kind of thinking, what is Christ talking about? Here's the verse. Here's the passage from the Old Testament. It's one he's going to use a lot. So this is right out of the law, the middle of the law. Look at Leviticus 8, uh, 19 verse 18. To the Jews, he writes the following. You shall not take vengeance. So we need to taste that. You shall not take vengeance. They do to you. I'm going to get them back. Talked about that last week. Or bear a grudge. You shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Hey, what's that, what's that you got there? What do you mean? What you carrying there? Oh, that's a grudge. I keep it with me all the time. 
fact, I got several of them. And I'm always open to, to creating new grudges and carrying those. I'm always bearing a grudge. In fact, right now I've got about four or five. Don't do that. That is sin. Look at verse 18 again. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Here's the text. You've heard it hath been said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Here's the text. Christ, here it is. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the text says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christ says what you've somehow gotten the impression is that Love your neighbor means those that are close to me, those that are near and dear, anybody outside of that, if they wrong me, I can hate them. That's not in the Bible. And so I'm thinking, it's, listen, it's not okay to hate. We say that sometimes. I hate so-and-so. I hate you. So I'm going to challenge us right now today, based off of Matthew 5, let's just cut that out of our vocabulary. Somehow we've got a wrong impression it's okay to hate people. Where did the Jews do this? It's not in the text. Are they just adding to? It's not okay to hate. Ah, let's go to Matt, uh, Psalm. Flip over. I do want you to go here. I know that one was on the screen. This will be on the screen also, but Psalm 139. Look at this one, Psalm 139. And again, another passage I do not claim to have a full grasp on. It was not my main study this week, but in all honesty, I'm trying to think, where did the Jewish nation come up with this idea that it's okay to hate? Because Christ is saying, word on the street, what they've been given this impression, it's a wrong impression, is you love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemy. Where might that have come from? Psalm 139, the great David, a man after God's own heart, in verse number 19, writes the following. David writes this. They would surely be familiar with this. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. There's a prayer. And then he talks to people. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. Get away from me. You that kill people and shed blood, innocent blood, is what he's talking about. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Now back to the Lord he's talking. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Maybe that's where they got the impression. Maybe it's okay to hate. Maybe it was the idea that God used the nation of Israel to go in and conquer seven nations more wicked than themselves. And so Israel gets to be the scourge on all the Canaanites. And then you have the Moabites and the Ammonites. And then you have the Arameans up in Syria, and God's using them as a scourge. And somewhere from the time of Christ to the 1,500 years previous to him, when the law was given, somewhere in that 1,500 years of activity, they come up with this idea, we have to love our own but those Gentiles are fuel for hell. God made them as fuel for hell, and we're supposed to hate them. And maybe they come across a text like this. But I want you to notice, I'm not teaching and preaching Psalm 139, but I want us to be clear. Though some passages in the Old Testament describe hatred for God's enemies, God's enemies, there are no Old Testament passages that teach us to hate our enemies. There is no passage, thou shalt hate your enemy. And that's what Christ is saying. I'm back in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. Again, the word on the street, you shall love your neighbor and hate. You shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. It's not in the Bible. So here's what I find. To a Jew, the greatest quality of a person I'm told in their culture was zeal, and zeal is a perfect blend of love and hate. Perfect love for their object and perfect hate for anything that comes against their object. And so one thing that I'm going to propose that in David's words here, David's hatred is not for people that have offended him, it's for those that are coming against his Lord. Even when David prays these prayers that I still don't fully understand, but he prays these imprecatory prayers against people, it may look like they're his enemies, but really, when you really flesh it out, what's happening is David 
does not like when they attack the anointed of God. He wouldn't attack the anointed of God and Saul, though Saul was not a godly man. David respected the office. And so if someone was attacking the office of the king of God's people or they're wanting to lead God's people away from God and toward destruction, yes, David got very upset, but it was not a personal thing. There's a man throwing rocks at David and cursing him, and David says, that, don't, don't stop him, let it be. I might deserve it. God might be leading him. So it's not a personal thing with him. God's enemies became David's enemies. Number two. So apparently the Jews forgot. They got this attitude that anyone who's non-Jewish, we're, we're to hate them. God hates all non-Jews. Wrong. Well, God loves those Jews who become Jewish, those Gentiles who become Jewish proselytes. No, you're to be a light to the Gentiles and God has love to the Gentiles and they were failing to miss this and so Christ is correcting the wrong impression. Point number two out of four this morning, the main one, the body of our message today is the second thought. Back in Matthew 5, Jesus commands to love our enemies. So let's hear that this morning. It's verse 44. But I say to you, so hear it, your Lord is talking, not me. Just let him use my vocal cords, but let use your eyes. Listen to the words of your Lord. My Lord says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Maybe someone's sitting here right now and saying, man, that's a, a command. That's very clear. But Jeff, I've got to be honest with you, I'm just not feeling it. Just not feeling it. Appreciate your honesty. I can relate with that. Can I tell you what you're not feeling? You're not feeling an attraction. You're not feeling affection. I'm just not feeling it. I feel it for these people, but I don't feel it for that person or those people. I'm just not feeling it for my enemy. Yeah, right. You don't feel an attraction. You don't feel an affection for them. I'm going to borrow a large quote. I'm going to quote him twice today, but one is an extended one, and I'll interject a few times in it, but... Again, I'm not endorsing everything that William Barclay writes, but if you can ever get your hand on the set of these little books by William Barclay, they're very, very valuable for your Bible study. And so this week, he helps the most, I feel like. And so he puts out that there's these four Greek words, and you guys know I'm not an expert on that, but there's this word that's like parent to child. We understand that kind of love. See, in English, we just use the word love, and it's how we use the word, the context, and how we put it in sentence. That gives the meaning. But the word we use is always the same word. The Greeks had an advantage on us, and he's going to say they had four words for love. One is this parent. One is an erotic kind of love that we typically associate as lustful, though it's not always lustful. It's, it's physical, very affectionate, very passionate. That's a kind of love. The Greeks had a separate word for that. But then Barclay points out how they have this word philia, which you've heard, Philadelphia. You've heard phileo, philia. What is that? That's the word that we typically think of that are our friends and people that we have affection for. That's love in our mind. We love them. And then there's this word. And so the key is if we understand what this word is calling for, then we'll know what Christ is calling for. So if you're saying, I just don't have warm, fuzzy, attractive affectionate feelings for, for my enemies right now, and I can't just flip a switch and do what Jesus says. Barclay writes the following. You've heard this word, right? You know the other word. And there's going to be a quote in a minute, but I, I want to encourage you, don't lock into your notes like, oh, hurry, I've got my pen. Just start, ah. let it rest. Let's get through the whole thing, hear it, feel it, and then when it comes on the screen at the end, then you write feverishly before I rudely interrupt you with another passage. And, and you're like, ah, because this is a long one, I understand. So today we'll leave it up there a little longer, um, though there'll be a passage following shortly after. But just let this note linger so they have time. Why am I spending so much time coaching you guys on that? I don't know. So let's move on. Here we go. What's happening? Love your enemies. Phileo, philia, that's what we think of. Barclay writes, so hear it. Agape is the word used here. You're like, Jeff, I knew that. Okay. We need refreshed. Barclay says the real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence. Invincible goodwill. Hear it again. The real meaning of agape is unconquerable benevolence, kindness. It's unconquerable. 
Agape is invincible goodwill. What's he saying is, I'm not going to stop. What he's saying is, you will not defeat my kindness. This is what Christ is calling for. But what if I don't have like these warm, fuzzy feelings? Let that come. Let that come. Here's where we're starting. Unconquerable benevolence, kindness. Invincible goodwill. Now he goes further. So he's still here. Don't fret over the note yet. He says, if we regard a person with agape, hear it, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, no matter if he insults us or injures us or grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to invade our hearts, but we will regard him with that unconquerable benevolence and goodwill which will seek nothing but his highest good. And now you may write your note if you're chomping at the bit. And some of you are like, I'm still I'm more of a listener. I get my notes at home from my spouse. Uh, wonderful. Let's hear it again. If we regard a person with agape, it means that no matter what that person does to us, no matter how he treats us, no matter if he insults us, injures us, grieves us, we will never allow any bitterness against him to invade our hearts. We will continue to regard that person with unconquerable benevolence and goodwill. We will seek nothing but his highest good. If I could put in a little two cent right here, I, my impression, my understanding of agape is that it takes the long view. It takes the long view. It, it's able to look beyond this time right here. And it's going to take, we could even say, the eternal view. I'm getting past this moment or what you did five years ago. We're talking about eternal things here. What you did 20 years ago, 40 years ago. That hurt like crazy. But I'm going to take the long eternal view because that's what our Lord is calling us to. Romans 5. You have your Bible? It's open before you hold your spot there, Matthew. Go over to Romans 5, two different verses here. Romans 5. One very familiar and one pretty familiar passage. Does the other verse show on the screen as well? Is that Go ahead and pop it up because I want you to look at the second one first. All right, Look on the screen there. You see verse 10? Look at the third line down on the left. Look at that. You see these three words? Much more now. Much more now. So, Jeff, what are we hitting at? Everybody kind of look this way for a second. I'm a child of God. I'm even a friend of God. That means that as I stand right here, I am, because I've put my faith and trust in Jesus, I am robed in the righteousness of Christ. And that means God has warm, emotional, strong affection for me. God has very strong affection for me. But here we're kind of dealing with, and I don't want to put too much weight on this because I'm talking about God's love and it's eternal and he's a timeless being. But the impression of what Christ is calling us to do, I think can maybe be found between these two verses here. There's almost like, listen, there's this like status and time frame of enemy, enemy, and then there's this status and time frame of harmony and peace and reconciliation and friend and child and related and affection and lots of emotion. What I'm saying is this comes, but it's not really started there. It's starting in this goodwill, this Kind, benevolence, unconquerable, that I'm going to do what you need done. I'm going to do the best for you. And then when you become, because you start as my enemy. Look at chapter 5, verse number 8. You see it on the screen. But God shows. So this is that agape love. God shows. Agape love says, I see a need, and I have committed to meeting this person's need. If I can meet it, God obviously met our greatest need. When? God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners. That's over. This is not a good. Things aren't good between us and the Lord. But he's already taking action to meet our greatest good. Unconquerable benevolence. Invincible. Goodwill toward us. What happened? How did God do this? Christ died for us. It literally cost the life of his son. Now down to verse number 10. 
For if while we were enemies, that's that status, that time frame, we were reconciled. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Oh, we've moved now. We're on this side. How? By the death of his son. Now we're dealing with this column. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In other words, it took his son's death to reconcile us. But now that we're reconciled, we live in fellowship and harmony and we live life with him. He died for us. Now he lives for us. We can never lose our salvation. Ties back into the last song we sang. Why? Because our Lord has chosen friendship with us because he dealt with our sins on the cross. It starts with this agape and then the feelings are there now. Would I die for everything that I just said so passionately? I wouldn't die for that, but I think that's what's happening. I really think. God's illustrating. In verse 8, in the start of verse number 9, this agape love. We're not attractive to him in our sin. It's not that he has a strong affection for us. And again, I know he's sovereign, he's eternal. But the idea being, he took measures to move us to this column so that the affection and the great love that we're used to thinking of when we think of love is now resting upon us unendingly because of the life of Christ. Back to Barclay's quote. You ready? I told you it was a long one that I would interject. Here's the rest of it, still in two more parts. Ready? Christ is calling you today, love your enemy. What does he mean? Quote, In the case of our nearest and dearest, we cannot help loving them. We speak of falling in love. It's something which comes to us quite unsought. It's something which is born of the emotions of the heart. You see that? In 1988, I didn't leave Asheville and go to Greenville, go to Bible college with the intention of, I think, I think I'm going to go there and, and meet this, this girl named Deanna. No clue. My feelings for her came quite unsought. I thought I was going there to get a Bible degree. Best thing I got was Deanna. <laughs> uh, wasn't sought. I didn't, I'm telling you, I wasn't looking for that last thing on my mind. And I was the last thing on her mind. We weren't on each other's mind at all. Again, here his words. In the case of our nearest and dearest, we cannot help loving them. We speak of falling in love. It's something which comes to us quite unsought. It's something which is born of the emotions of the heart. But in the case of our enemies, love is not only something of the heart. It is also something of the will. It is something which we cannot help. No, I said that part wrong. It is not something which we cannot help. It is something which we will have to, which we have to will ourselves into doing. That sentence again. It is not something which we cannot help. This agape, it is something which we will have to will ourselves into doing. It is, in fact, a victory and conquest over that which instinctively comes to the natural man our enemy does something against us there's an instinctive reaction to them agape love conquers that overcomes that has a victory over that so christ is not calling you to have automatic just warm loving affectionate attractionate feelings towards someone what he's calling for is something that will conquer overcome have victory over your natural instincts one more paragraph here to help us he says agape does not mean a feeling of the heart which cannot be helped and which comes unbidden and unsought. It means a determination of the mind whereby we achieve this unconquerable goodwill even to those who hurt and injure us. Bring it home. Agape, someone has said, is the power to love those whom we do not like and who do not like us. What? Agape is the power to love those that you might not like and they may not like you. You're like, then how are we supposed to do this? You can't. But he's correct with your next quote. He writes, in point of fact, we can only have agape when Jesus Christ enables us to conquer our natural tendency to anger and bitterness and to achieve this invincible goodwill. Hey, you want to live like everybody else and like your natural instincts or Christ is saying, I'm calling you to something that is unnatural. I'm calling you something that only I can give you. So before I leave that thought, I want to ask you. Say, Jeff, I actually have someone in mind. And again, like you said earlier, I am really not feeling it. I don't have attraction or affection for them. Can I ask it this way? Can we at least get here? Check your heart. If it were 
only up to you. Can you picture it? It's only up to you what kind of eternity they will have. How many times have you ever heard someone tell another person, I hope you rot in hell? Have you ever heard that? Don't nod. I wonder if anybody in here has ever verbalized that to someone else. I hope you rot in hell. I hope you go to hell. Agape takes the long view. I want to ask you, if it were only up to you and you could make the call on your enemy's eternity, what kind of eternity would they have? Please remember, if you knew what they did, think ahead a thousand years. Come on, God, think ahead a thousand years. Those people, they flew those planes into the side of the, the, the towers and they, they crumbled and they killed 3,000. I'm going to tell you, if I had my way, those people would not punished, be punished for eternity in hell. You say, well, what about God? I don't know about all their sins against God. I'm talking about what they've done against us as Americans. That does still not warrant me wishing them a horrible existence in eternity. You say, well, then what would you want? I want the best for those guys. My fear is, and my strong assumption is, they are in hell, getting what they deserve, but that wouldn't be my wish. What's your feeling? What is your will? If it was up to you, I get to call the shot? This person did that to me? Please don't go to the old erroneous Catholic doctrine of purgatory either in your mind. I'd probably give them a little purgatory, and then I'd let them out. <laughs> Agape, we want the good for them. Before we leave this thought, though, again, the body of today's message is verse 44. Look at it again. Christ says, I say to you, love your enemies. Agape, this determination, unconquerable, invincible. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Ouch. That's tough. Can we acknowledge that? that that's, that's tough. R.T. France writes the following, and then again, if you were not with us last week, you will need to glance back at verse 39, 40, 41, 42. R.T. France says that Jesus goes beyond verse 39. So last week, by the way, these two uh, passages, I think, are coupled. These are connected. So last week, Jesus says, I say to you, do not resist. You've heard eye for an eye. Hey, that's fair. You knock out an eye, you get an eye knocked out. You knock out a tooth, you get the same tooth knocked out. You fracture a bone, they're going to fracture the same bone in you. Very, very fair. That's a government issue. Christ talks about a personal issue back in verse 39. He says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, we talked about how that is this backhanded insult that takes place on the right cheek, then turn to him the other. Also, you don't even defend yourself. You don't even retaliate. Let's be honest. Someone attacks us verbally, even physically, if you take it literally. Our first reaction is to do at least what they did to us Probably more. Hey, you started it. I'm going to finish it. And we're going to come way over on the top more. Or at least let me do a little, little less than what they did to me. Christ says, no, no, no. Don't do any of that. What? And don't even defend yourself. Don't correct their insults and attacks. Don't correct. Somebody else may correct it. You just let it slide. And we, we looked at that last week. Like, that's impossible. There's no way. This is too much to ask. And then he comes along this week, and Christ says, I not only want you not to retaliate and not to resist, I want you to do good for them. And oh, by the way, seal it with prayer. What? That's harder. So I don't know if that sounds hard. Oh, it's harder if you take Christ's words literally. Much harder. Prayer's next level. Piper helps us here. Only a couple more quotes today, but this one I think helped me out. Maybe it'll help you. This end of verse 44, Piper writes the following. It's a command, so hear that. It's a command of Christ. You are commanded to pray for your enemy. Here we go. He says, it is clear from this specific command that love is not merely behavior. To be sure, it is doing good for the enemy, but not merely that. He says it is also a heart's desire. So it's not just action. Okay, I'll take the action for their eternal good. But on the inside, I really despise this person. Nope, that's not what Christ is talking about. To his point, he says this specific command to love is not merely behavior. To be sure, it is doing good for the enemy, but it's not merely that. It is also a heart's desire. Where is he getting that out of the text? He says, I base this on the assumption that when we pray for our enemies, we ask God for blessings from our heart. We're asking God for blessings from our heart. 
What does he mean? Write this down. Jesus is not commending hypocritical prayer. He is not calling for show prayer. Christ is not calling us, hey, pray a little hypocritical prayer. Pray a little showy type prayer. Put on a nice little show. That is not what Christ is calling for. You know what that sounds like, right? Lord, I worship you. Ask for your forgiveness on these things. I thank you for these things. And Lord, I need you for these things for me and these things for them. Oh, and by the way, bless my enemy over there, but not really. Jesus says I have to do it. So I said, bless my enemy, but don't really answer that one. But Lord, give me and mine. That is not what Christ is called. So what's he calling for? Piper continues. He's calling for real prayer. That is real Godward desire for the good of our enemy. Love really wants the enemy to experience God's best. Love, Christ, don't get it wrong, Christ is not saying get in there and help them advance their wicked causes. Christ is not saying pray for God to bless their sin. What he's saying is do good, have this attitude of goodwill and kindness toward them that is unconquerable and pray for God to pour out his best blessings on their enemy. And I hear that, and I've wrestled with this half a week, and you guys probably hear that going, that's tough. That is harder than verse 39. That is a lot harder than verse 39. I agree. Now before we go to the third point this morning, can we agree on this? All this passage is just theory until you put a name on it. This is nice. We love our enemies. Some of you have already put a name on it and you're wrestling with this text. Some of you have made it to a little over halfway through this message. And it's just been a nice little, sound like some doctrinal stuff Jeff's up there talking about, some verses. I wonder when it'll be over. Listen, I'm going to ask you, put a name on it. Right now, let's do it. Here's your task. Think of someone, here's the qualifications, someone who for no good reason. I'm not talking about someone that have their version, your version, and it's a little fuzzy who started it, but they did more and you did less. I'm not talking about that. I mean for no good reason they hurt you. I mean for no good reason they want you to fail. I mean no good reason they opposed you. They've damaged your life. Your life would be different if that person wasn't opposing you, either in the face or behind the scenes slandering you. Who is coming to mind? Some of you are like, I'm struggling for anybody to come to my mind. Some of you are like, how many? And some of you are like, I got one really big one. I got four or five more. Now, deal with the text. Here's what I have to ask you. Be honest in your heart. Could you, in a moment, you've got to catch this, in a moment of what I call locked-in prayer. Some of y'all are like, I know what you mean. Locked-in locked prayer is when God's right there, and I'm here, and faith is really strong. These are the prayers that get answered. How many of you would say, this person I have in my mind, in a time of locked-in prayer, the answered kind of prayer, I would use that to fervently, fervently, God, please pour out your best favor upon this enemy of mine. How many of you can sit there and say, oh, I can do that? Or are you saying, what? I'm going to waste, I mean, use locked-in prayer on them? I don't think so. It's a command. Wow. This Sermon on the Mount is beating me up. I don't know what it's doing to you guys, but it beats me up every week. Write this down. Prayer is key. Why? Because prayer for an enemy simultaneously demonstrates love. If someone, if you're sitting here saying, boy, someone's in my mind, and by God's grace, I have done that, or I plan to do that, or I, I, by God's grace, I think I can do that. That demonstrates love, and it fuels love. That's why I think prayer is the key. You say, I just don't know that I have that level. Start praying for them and see if God brings this affection and attraction. And all of a sudden, you really can say, I have genuine goodwill. What I find is that when I start praying for something, I want those prayers to be answered, and my heart goes where my prayers are, and I think that's what Christ is calling. Start praying for your enemies. Start praying for your persecutors. Why? Because they're your persecutors. 
They need prayer. If you're right with God and they're persecuting you, that means they're not right with God. They need some serious prayer. Pray for those people. Pray for God. Again, not God advance their wickedness. God, pour out your best on them. Give them the best. Don't let them go to hell. Don't let them live separate from you. Lord, hold it back. Hold back. Be good to them. Do what's best for them. One final tidbit before we hit the third thing. Just listen. If you can ever get there and pray for your enemy like we're commanded to do, if God starts answering that request, you're like, okay. I started praying. Lo and behold, three weeks later, the answers to that prayer starts coming in. I saw it on Facebook. Fight the, the urge. Just so you know, three weeks ago I started, and I've been noticing that my specific, just letting you know, it's my awesome and effective prayers that are probably responsible for these blessings. See, I'm not a bad guy. You need to get off my back. Fight that. Just let God get all the credit and just silently love them and pray for them. That's hard, I know, but fight the urge. Number three this morning, we're looking at verses 45 and 48. Christians are to be like their father. So this is really an outflow, a description of Christ's earlier command. Here it is again. Christians are to be like God, their father. We are to be like the father. So I'm backing up verse 44. I'm going to read 45. You ready? Go with me. Looking at it with our eyes. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the just unjust. Now skip down to verse 48. Why? Because Christians are to be like God their Father. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Verse 44, 45 again. So that you may be sons of your Father. That's worded a little tricky and so I want to make this clear. In fact, it's one of our notes. Please hear me. If anybody's here this morning saying, I'm not really a Christian, but I want to become a Christian. I want to be one of the children of God, not just by creation, but I want to be one of God's children that he has this affection and love and that live with him forever. And so I'm going to start loving my enemies because I want to be a, I want to be a child of God. Write this down. We do not become children of God by loving our enemies. We don't become children of God by loving our enemies. What's this talking about? We prove that we are, we already are the children of God because we love like the Father loves. If you're in the family, then you have the family resemblance. You look and act like the Father, never perfectly in this life, but we do live and act and have the same nature of the Father. Jesus, and John especially, picks up on this and keeps bringing it into his writings. Christ says, it's by your love is how they'll know you. That's going to be the distinguishing mark. Are you marked by love? We don't love to become, we love because, and our love proves. So as we're sitting here saying, man, that would be tough to pray for. That would be tough to be nice. It's all I can do not to retaliate. God's people hear the commands of Christ and live unusual lives. Two ways Christ points out that we need to be like the Father. Number one, God is good to his friends and to his enemies. God is good to his friends and to his enemies. We saw it in verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you had that power, would you do it like God? I thought this week, it's 11.45 here. Somewhere around the world right now, guys. There's some wicked, wicked people soaking up the rays of God's sunlight. Some are sitting in a park. Some are on a porch. Sipping on a cool beverage. Some are sitting on a porch, sipping on a warm beverage. Some are in parts of the country that the leaves are already starting to change. I mean, they're as wicked as they can be. And they're sitting there enjoying a cup of coffee. And the sun's coming through just fine. And they're having, and it tastes good. Their taste buds work awesomely. And their eyes work great. Man, they see life in color because God willed it to be so. Some are on the sun deck of a big cruise ship. Some are out in the middle of the ocean on these large yachts and they're as wicked as they could be. And what are they doing? They're soaking up God's sun rays. 
Some are on the beach, and their ki little kids playing in the sand. Others are playing in the water. Some over here throwing a ball around. Again, they're sipping a beverage, just enjoying the day off or maybe the week off. It's great. What are they doing? God is blessing them with sunlight. Others around the world, wicked, evil people, their crops are being watered by God's rain. Those crops will grow and feed them, and their crops will grow, and they'll sell some of it, and they'll have this huge profit, and they're going to live well because God gave sun and rain and sun and rain. And you know what they'll do? They'll use their words to take God's name in vain. Some of them will say God doesn't exist until hard times hit. And when sorrow hits, it's God's fault. So they'll blame God conveniently for all their sorrow. But when good things come, he never gets credit. And he surely never gets any thanksgiving. But that's how they use the blessings of God. And all the while, God could say, you know what? I could make my son. You said, no, really, he couldn't. Yes, he could. He could make his sun and his rain be only on the just and the good, but he lets it fall on the wicked and the unjust. It's just the way God works. And we're supposed to be like him. Do good to your friends and to your enemies. I'm not saying God does equally good to friends and enemies, but God does good to friends and enemies. Flip over to Romans 12. Romans 12. Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, Jeff, all right, let me get this straight. We're pretty much, if the way you're describing the passage is correct, we're pretty much to be doormats. Just let people walk all over us. Nothing ever bad happens to them. And we're just going to love them, love them, love them, and do all these good things and keep praying for good. No, we're not doormats. Look at Romans 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Hey, look this way very quick. Very quick, watch. Someone does good to you. If you do evil back, that's horrible. They do good, you do evil back, that's horrible. If someone does good to you and you do good back, that's normal. If someone does evil to you and you do evil back, that's normal. What Christ is calling us, and here Paul is writing to the Romans, is if someone does evil to you, don't do evil back. Ugh. That's unusual. Verse 17, repay no one evil, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, he's implying it may not always be possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Verse 19 is key. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it. Leave place. Leave a room. Give God space. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, this is the Bible, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Christian, don't you get even. So if you're sitting here saying, this person did something to me, and it's everything, I want to get them back. Okay, I'm not going to. I guess I'll just be a doormat. No, by faith, we realize that Romans 12 is true. There is a God who is holy, and because he's a just God, Every sin will be punished, and those that were done to you will be punished. And you say, okay, I think I got it. I got it. By faith, we're biding our time, and in God's perfect time, he's going to drop the hammer, and that's what I want. And in the meantime, I'll kind of act like I'm loving them, and Lord bless my enemies, but don't really. And so, no. Christ is calling us. He's letting you know God will get vengeance. Every sin will be paid for. But agape, you know what agape says? God, I don't know, listen. God, I don't know all that they've done against you, but what they've did, done against me, let it slide. God, I don't want them to suffer. Agape says, God, I know that their sin will be paid for. It's going to be paid for. But Lord, I'd like you to spare them. Would you spare them? Christ prays on the cross. Over and over, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen, for the men who are stoning and killing him, he's praying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Don't lay this sin to their charge. Agape love says, I don't want them to have to pay. I want them to be spared. If you're taking notes, write this down. Agape realizes that their eternity is far more important than my past hurt. Their eternity is more important than my past hurt. Agape love says, 
God, I want the absolute best for them, and the best for them is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Guys, listen, if they get a relationship with Jesus Christ, their sins will be paid for. You're like, no, they get off. They get to go to heaven. How is it paid for? Christ on the cross. You know who I think of? Saul of Tarsus is wreaking havoc. He's murdering, imprisoning, beating, having Christians beaten. I'm sure some people are like, somebody stop this. And probably some prayers went up like, God, do something about this man. You know what God did? He saved the guy, and he doesn't have to pay for his sins. Jesus already paid for his sins on the cross. Agape says, Lord, let Christ's death on the cross pay pay for this person. Let it count for this person. Bring them into a relationship with Christ. That's the best good that could ever happen to them. That's the good that I want to come into their life. Matthew 5. We're to be like our Father in doing good for friends and our enemies. But verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be perfect. So I've already confessed we're not going to get to the bottom of this one. I'm sorry. A lot people a lot better, a lot, lot smarter, and more well versed than I am struggle with this. So I'm going to propose to you two ideas. What does this mean? You therefore must be perfect, Jesus says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect, we know, has this idea of sinless, perfectly righteous. You need to be perfect, like the heavenly Father is perfect, but. Some experts who really look at these words and know the meaning of this word, they also say, technically speaking, the word behind our word perfect, what it really has an idea of is mature and complete. You are to be mature and complete as your Heavenly Father is complete. God is complete. So Christian, Jesus is saying, I want you to be mature. I want you to be complete. I want you to fulfill what you were designed and made to do. One more from Barclay. He writes the following. This helped me. He says, a thing is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned and designed and made. Some thought went into this thing, and then some design went into this thing, and then there's this making of this thing. Again, he writes, a thing is perfect if it fully realizes the purpose for which it was planned and designed and made. And then he illustrates it with something that, stood out to me you have a loose screw in your house it's a loose screw and let's just pretend we don't know everything about tools and so you see this piece of metal and it has these strange metal ribs and this funny indention on the top but it needs to be fixed it's not doing its job and someone goes to this thing called a toolbox and they bring out a screw driver and they put it in your hand and immediately you're like well, that's kind of weird. That thing kind of fits right in my hand. Like, just really seems to really fit. Look, look at the end of that. Yeah, look at the end. You know, that looks like if I were, it would like, look, it fit perfectly. Yeah, yeah. And you start, look, if that screwdriver could talk, forgive me, my immature way of thinking. Strange things go through my mind during the week. If that screwdriver would t- could talk, I think it would say, I'm so glad to be out of the box. I'm in the owner's hand doing what I was designed to do. Christ is saying, grace for you. Be perfect. You were made to glorify God by loving God and by loving other people. What if they do wrong things to me? Love them anyway. That's why you were made for. That's how you give glory to God. Be perfect. Fulfill your purpose. And then we finish with verse 46, 47, number four today. Loving our own is easy. I hope we'll listen here. Loving our own is easy. We need work on verse 46, 47. Say, Jeff, you got individuals in mind. No. By the way, I'm going to brag on you. We're better at 46 and 47 than any church I've ever been in. But we need work in 46, 47. Look at the text. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Love your enemies. Love is the theme. Right. I love me and mine. Now that's the Jewish perversion. Love everybody. But what if they... Love everybody. I'll read here for time's sake, but don't, don't get my 
the intention that the Lord has for us. Don't let it get lost because I'm reading. Taste these words. Jeff, isn't Christ being a little petty? But if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brother, greeting, isn't that like petty? It doesn't really matter. Listen to me. Intentional actions reveal your heart. And when we do the same thing over and over, it reveals your heart. And when you neglect to do something over and over, being challenged by it, by the Lord, the Lord, and we just neglect to do it, it reveals your heart. Loving our own is easy. When we claim to be God's people, but we choose to only interact with people that are like us, we do not live like genuine Christians. If Christians have the opportunity to greet and do good for people that may differ from them in age, color, tastes, oh, your style is a little, appearance, they're not as attractive as you are, or maybe they're too attractive for your taste. If Christians have the opportunity to greet and do good for people that may differ from them in income, political views, temptations, you're tempted by what? Uh, we have our temptations, but we're not tempted by that. You need to stay over there. If Christians have the opportunity to greet and do good for people that may differ from them in age, color, taste, appearance, income, politics, temptations, and a number of other things, but snub them only to greet and to be good to the same old crowd they always greet. They're acting just like unsaved people. Jeff, are you saying we're unsaved? I'm not saying you're unsaved. I'm saying you're acting like unsaved because there's no difference. I know the good guys lost yesterday. Because they played somebody that's a whole lot better than them. Y'all know that Clemson fans will high-five strangers as long as they have the orange and the paw tilted toward 1 o'clock? Hey, go Tigers! Yeah, buddy, how about that? Yeah! And your team and my team does the same thing. We'll go there, and we got our colors on. You got my colors on, how about it? Other side of the cafe. I don't know you. Hey! Drunks at a bar. Drunks at a bar. Norm. Everybody just talk to each other. Woo. I don't know what it is. Motorcycle riders, they acknowledge each other. Mustangs. If you have a Mustang, particularly, they've got their own little community, and they nod, wave. Yeah, you, I, we're the same. Even the tax collectors. Write this down. To only love people like us is a form of self-love. To only love people like us is a form of self-love. So what kind of people do you like? Um, I, like, I, like I like people pretty much like me. You know, they kind of look like me, kind of about my status in society, kind of my taste, definitely my color, definitely my political views, and pretty much my same place in spiritual growth that's who I like so you like to hang out with people and spend time and greet and do good to people like you yeah so if I'm getting it straight you love you some you <laughs> what you can't get enough of you yeah I love me some me the more of me I can surround I love me and so if I can surround myself with lots of me we get along really well and then here comes Christ Grace of you, if when we gather, we, we're only good to the same people as us, we're not special. But when God's children, controlled by God's Spirit, become conduits to greet and bless strangers, or strangers away from God, or even an enemy, that's special. That's unusual. Now that's unique. That's what Christ has called. Don't even the tax collectors and the Gentiles love on their own? I want something special. 
So let's close with one last look at 48 and 20. If you have your Bible, glance back to verse 20 as we finish chapter 5. So nine weeks ago, (laughs) we started on a journey where Jesus made this statement. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they heard that, I'm telling you, when they read that, that sounded impossible. Put yourself in their shoes. Please work with me here. Watch. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. They probably heard that and thought, scribes and Pharisees, do you know how strict... That's impossible. Now, six sections later where Jesus has revealed the true internal nature of the law, they're probably thinking, we thought that was impossible to have like not even close to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Now that we've heard what you've had to say, don't murder but don't even be angry. Don't commit adultery but don't even look with lustful intent. Don't divorce. Don't swear at all. Always tell the truth. Don't retaliate when attacked. Be humble when somebody comes after our stuff. Somebody forces me to do something, be helpful to them. Somebody asks me for things, I'm supposed to be generous. And now I'm supposed to love my enemy and actually literally pray for God to pour out real blessings on them. This is way more impossible than the whole scribes and Pharisees thing. You know what it does? If we understand what Christ has been teaching, here's where we should come to. If you haven't already. God. Your demand is perfection. I have failed. I've blown it in every way. God, I thank you for some mercy. But God, I need some grace. God, I need a savior. God, I need a new heart. This one stinks. This one has no chance of doing these things. This is impossible. What he's been saying here in the last six sections is way more impossible. God, I need a new heart. I don't have a chance. You ever been there? That's called salvation. And when you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, it starts with some confession. I need a new heart. I need a Savior. And then you put your faith in Christ. Christians, you know this to be true. Here's what happens. He gives you a new heart. And he starts a work. And it's going to take your whole life. But what I'm telling you, when Christians look at verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We don't just water it down. Something in us us strives. I want to do that. I'll never reach it. I'm going to fall short. But God's put something in me. I want that. My salvation is not riding on, on me reaching that. But I want it. And God, thank you for this new heart. But I need you to keep growing me. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, I'll pray and we'll be dismissed. Would you bring the Lord into focus? Maybe now with eyes closed is a good time. We've had this text before us. It's had our attention. Maybe now is a good time as we close. Just bring the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father. Let Him talk to you just before we pray. Do you hear him saying it's not okay to hate? Hey, not okay to hate. Do you hear him say love your enemy, the one you have in your mind? Who came to mind? Love them. Do you want the eternal best for them? Do you want the temporal best for them, not saying to be advanced in their sin? Do you want, the, do you want them to have a relationship with Christ not just so that they will get off your back, but because you have this agape love, this new heart. Hear the Lord saying, I'm calling you to an unconquerable kind of kindness to them. Just be invincible in your desire for goodwill, unconquerable kindness. Desire their eternal good. And then the tough one, pray for God's best in their life. And then greet them and do good. And greet your friends and greet strangers. Greet those that are far from God and greet those that have hurt you. And do good to them because you were made for it. 
Live up to what you were made for. God made you to love that enemy. And just before I pray, if anyone's here and you say, this is so overwhelming, it's impossible. Confess your inability and your sin to the Lord right now. Why don't you right now, right where you sit, just say, God, I am such a sinner. But you promised that whoever believes in your Son will receive eternal life. You, you said, Lord, whoever calls on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And why don't you do that? Say, God, you can't lie. Christ, you are the Lord. You are my Lord. I'm asking you to be my Savior. I receive your salvation. I know it's enough. You promised, I know it's enough. And then ask him, God, give me that new heart that glorifies Christ, that loves others. Father, as we're dismissed, Lord, thank you for Matthew 5. It's worked us over, but it's been good. Lord, I pray that we're different, that we'll react different, that we'll be proactive in a unique, special way, not just like everybody else in the world. Let us be unique. Let Graceview be unique. Let the Christians in Anderson County in South Carolina be unique in all the different churches. Pour out your favor on those that are evangelizing and discipling your people. Bless their efforts. And Lord, those that have hurt us, God, we're asking you to spare them and give them grace and mercy and save them and give them the best, which is Christ and a relationship with him. You are our portion. You're the gospel. Thank you for our Christ, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen.